Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. Charlene Hunter-Galt. You may know her name, and if you don't, I'm about to introduce you to a longtime journalist and a trailblazer. Charlene is the reason so many journalists of color are able to do the work we do today. She paved the way by becoming one of the first black journalists to hold high-profile jobs at major news organizations. At The New Yorker, she became the first African-American staff writer in the early 1960s. As a reporter for The New York Times, she established the newspaper's Harlem Bureau in 1968. A decade later, we saw her on national TV as a correspondent at PBS. Charlene worked for the McNeil-Lara Report, which became PBS NewsHour. She was there for nearly 20 years. In 1997, she became the chief correspondent in Africa for National Public Radio. And in 1999, she joined CNN, where she served as the bureau chief and a correspondent based in South Africa until 2005. But her career in journalism is not where she first made a name for herself. Charlene Hunter-Gault is in the history books as one of two black students who desegregated the University of Georgia in 1961. Today, she's traveling the country to talk about her latest book, My People, Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives. I talked to her during her visit to the Twin Cities and was thrilled to find out how much we have in common and how energetic she is at the age of 80. Charlene, it's just such an honor to meet you and uh, to have a chance to talk to you in person. Welcome to Minnesota. Well, thank you. It's a great welcome coming from you, my <laughs> soror. Uh, yes, we are sorority sisters. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Right. Uh, it's you know, it's really hard to know exactly where uh, to begin in talking with you. Um, I have so many questions, but as I sit in front of you and as I, I look into your eyes, all I can think about is just how proud I am of you and um, recognizing how much strength and courage it has taken, I'm sure it has taken you, to to do what you did in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s as a black woman in America. And uh, do you see yourself as a trailblazer? No, I don't, I don't think of myself in that way because I was enabled by so many people, including my sorors, but also sisters from other sororities and men from fraternities. But I've always had support from the time I was a baby. I mean, you know, five, six years old, I had support from my family. And I they always made me feel special. And that was important at one particular time, especially uh, because it was during segregation. Mm-hmm. And I had been reading. I learned to read early. And my grandmother read three newspapers a day and would give me the comics. And that's where I learned about Brenda Starr. And when I told my mother that I wanted to be like Brenda Starr. Who was Brenda Starr? For Brenda those of us Starr who don't know. was a white journalist who, in a comic strip character, yes. who traveled the world. And I just found her life so interesting, even at that young age, living in a small southern town. And when I told my mother, Mommy, I want to be like Brenda Starr, she didn't say, that's what that's not what little black girls do. Because again, this was the era of years of segregation. She just said very casually, okay, if that's what you want to do. And I think that that going into my 
subconscious, really, was what opened my path and created a place for me to go wherever I wanted to go. Now, in those days, it was segregation, so I couldn't be Brenda Starr. But then I went to an all-black elementary school where we got the hand-me-down books from the white schools where the pages were often torn out and all kinds of second-class stuff that got sent over to us. But that's where, in addition to having Brenda Starr as uh, a role model, Mm -hmm. I learned about uh, other black journalists who were paving the way in their own communities, like Ida B. Wells and other black people who were making the best of bad situations and prospering. And so I never thought that I was doing anything unusual. I was just doing what was expected of me. So much curiosity about what was happening in your family relationships, because clearly they were pouring something into you. They were instilling something in you that uh, has carried you so, so well. What, what do you think? Like, what, what is it that your, your parents and grandparents were saying to you or doing that made you view yourself as, 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 as you know, powerful and strong and capable of doing whatever you dreamed of? Well, that was one when my mother said, oh, if that's what you want to do. But then I had a conversation with my uncle. And when I was writing my first book, I asked him about his relationship with his mother because she was, when they were in elementary school, his mother was in elementary school with them. She was in the third grade when they were in the third grade. And I said, was that embarrassing? He said, embarrassing? Why, we were so proud. And and that was one story he told me, and my grandmother became, in a way, a role model for me, that grandmother, as well as the other one. They were all, I'm a preacher's kid and a, and a grandchild of a preacher, <laughs> and my grandmother was a saint. And so I, I, he said, my father used to tell the three of us, his wife, <laughs> his two sons, get education because that's going to be the key to your liberation. So all of our lives, that's why black history is so important. Because when you learn about the trials and tribulations, but as well as, as well as the successes of black people, even when the times were allied against them, it's so important to see how they survived and prospered. And so that's why I'm such a proponent Mm -hmm. and an advocate for black history, despite all of the challenges that we're having with that today. I'm just saying, no, 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 we have to have our history because that's how we've made it to this point and how we will make it in the future. Even when we encounter challenges, when we look at our history, we know. Well, look at what Ida B. Wells did. Oh, yeah. I have a poster of her. On my desk. Do you? I don't know that. Oh, I want to see it. I want to take a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love that too. But I'm like, you know, the days I feel challenged, I'm like, well, well, think about what, you know, black journalists before me went through. Mm-hmm. And I just have to change my attitude, change my face, change my spirit and move through it. 
right? So that's, well, you probably don't mean change. You probably mean adjust. Adjust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you fix my face. Right. As my right. grandma would say, "Fix your face, baby." <laughs> right. Um, so much there. So I want to go back. You said you learned how to read early. I'm a huge um, uh, reading advocate. I care very much about uh, children learning how to read and, and getting on a great level. Uh, how young were you when you learned how to read? Do you, do you know? Oh, I think I was five or six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you went into school confident. Com- well, yeah. And my mom was a big reader. She read a book a day. Mm. My mother was wow. a big reader wow. and a great example uh, for me. In so many ways um, that, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think parents, and I'll tell you that, I know you know, with two. Give me some advice, though. Two, Please tell no, me. <laughs> no, you, I, I've listened to you talk about your children, so I think you don't need any advice. <laughs> well, they're in college now, but mm-hmm. uh, you do want to encourage them to be curious and to, to be informed, mm-hmm. right, so you can make good decisions. Right? right. That's right. So let's talk about college. Uh, Sixty years ago. You were one of two black students who integrated the University of Georgia. So before we talk about your journalism career, let's start with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you and your classmate, Hamilton Holmes, were the first two black students to enroll uh, at the University of Georgia in its history. It took a legal battle to get you in there. And I'm just trying to imagine an, an 18-year-old version of you. You know, you started college uh, at Wayne State University in Detroit while you were waiting to get into the University of Georgia. I, I, I mean, how do you, how, like, what was powering that decision? Because you, you know, you were having, I imagine you were having fun. You, you had friends, but you wanted to do, you knew you had to do more. Well, the only reason I was at Wayne was because the the lawsuit that we, Hamilton Holmes and I filed with the help of Donald Hollowell, Vernon Jordan, Constance Baker Motley. There's a great book out by her about her right now, which I recommend everybody get because she was a real trailblazer. Um, but they were arguing the case. So that's how I got to Wayne so that I wouldn't waste any time mm-hmm. with my education. But Hamilton and I, we were first and third in our high school class. And so there were a group of aggressive black men who felt that in Georgia, we had waited too long to get the Brown versus Board of Education decision tested and Brown v. Board. And it's interesting when I mention Brown v. Board, there's so many people who don't even know what it was. But that was the decision in 1954 that outlawed mm-hmm. segregated schools. And they thought that Georgia was behind in getting the law tested and then right. implemented. So they came to our high school and asked the principal for two students who might be interested in going. And of course, with Hamilton and me being first and third, they brought us in. Long story short, we go down to uh, Georgia State, which is right there in Atlanta. Yeah. And what's interesting in retrospect now, Hamilton and I both looked at the curriculum at Georgia State, and this will tell you how well our black teachers taught us mm-hmm. because we looked at that curriculum at Georgia State and we both said this isn't good enough. And then I have to give Hamilton credit, my my dear friend who's transitioned to the land he where he lives forever. He went out on the deck and pointed north and he said, 
That's where I want to go. And, of course, we were friends, but we were also competitors. <laughs> so when he said, that's where I want to go, I said, yeah, me, me too. Me too. I can do that and, too. What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> but the men were a little concerned because Athens was 70 miles, some miles away. Athens, Georgia. Yeah. And on the way mm-hmm. there were uh, towns where the Ku Klux Klan and other racist groups were. But they said, here we've got two students who want to do it, so we got to figure out how to do it. And they did. And that's how we started our challenge to the state laws that were still based on segregation. And in the end, we won the case. And January 9th, 1961, Hamilton and I walked onto the campus of the University of Georgia as its first two black students. And I think that the best way to describe it is that we desegregated it instead of integrated it. What's because the difference? In, it took in a while words? to integrate. Desegregate was, okay, black people are here, but they're, they, I, I couldn't go to the cafeteria to yeah. eat. So we need to stay. This was not a welcoming environment. Not at all. Not at but all. again, because of the background and training that I had, it didn't bother me that there were students yelling inward, go home, because one of the when we walked onto the campus, that's what they they had gathered around the registration building, which is now named for Hamilton and me, by the way. But they were yelling inward, go home, and the the whole word. Mm-hmm. And remember, I told you how supportive our community was during the days of segregation. Well, they used to have fundraisers every year. And the the child whose parents got raised the most money would either be crowned king or queen. And my mother and grandmother, my father was serving in the military abroad, so it was just them. And they would go all over the black community raising nickels, pennies, quarters, whatever they could get. And that particular night when they announced the winning family, and the winning child, who was going to be king or queen, I heard my name, Charlene Hunter. And the prize was a bull of a watch and a diamond tiara. Oh, wow. Well, I wasn't impressed with the bull of a watch, actually. <laughs> but I wore that diamond tiara so many days that my classmates got so annoyed with me. And they used to yell at me. and So finally, I took the physical crown off of my head. But the notion that I was a queen took up residence in my head. So when I walked onto the campus of University of Georgia and they were yelling the N-word, go home, I was looking for the N-word. Who is that they're talking about? Because I was what? A queen. So they couldn't be talking about me. So it was my history. And I talk about our black history that creates suits of armor When you learn, as I did in my black school, about Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois and, you know, just generations of black men and women who had fought to be whole, equal people, you just walk in that path. And I wore my crown and I eventually made friends at UGA. Hamilton, by the way, Never made a single friend the entire time, the two and a half years we were there. What was the difference? 
Um, because you, you've told stories and, 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 and in an essay and a story in your book, um, your, your book, My People, Five mm-hmm. Decades of Writing About Black Lives, you talk about, you know, what it was like in your dormitory, a, a brick coming through the window. Uh, you, you, you've talked about in interviews, you know, the, the other women, the other college students, you know, when you first arrived, making noise uh, in the dorm, trying to distract you so you couldn't study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was the difference? That, that doesn't sound friendly. You made friends. He did not. What was the difference? One of the differences was there were journalism students uh, who were much more receptive to me, I have to say that. Um, And then I think what was the case with Hamilton was that before he got there in the biology department, because he was Mm pre-med, you know, these were white boys and girls from, you know, uh, country towns, uh, cotton fields and stuff like that. And so when they took a test, the curve was based on who made the highest grade. And so the curve in those days usually ended around 60. So 60 could be an A or 50 could be an A Mm -hmm. and then on down. Well, Hamilton was so smart that he every test he took was either 98 or 99. Oh, no, he's throwing off the curve. And they hated him. <laughs> they they hated, wasn't really personal. He that's was messing right. with their grades. That's right. Wow. And so so that was part of the reason. Oh. But so what he would do is he would go to class. If he had to take a test, take a test, score high. And then he'd leave campus immediately after class Go back to the black home where he, black family home where he stayed. They had a black restaurant for people who were black because there was no place that black. So he people. wasn't living in a dorm. He was living. No, in a no, home. they wouldn't let him live in the dorm. the The girls had to live in the dorm. Those were the days of magnolias. So they had to be. The girls had to live in the dorm, but the boys didn't. Oh. So he would go back to this family, the uh, the Killians, and get undressed put on his football clothes and go play football with the boys in the hood. And that's how he got through. Now, the night you referred to them throwing bricks through my window, there was a riot Mm -hmm. outside my dorm. He didn't know about it because he was about three or four minutes away, a good way from where we were, where the uh, dormitory was. So he didn't know about it until they brought me to uh, the house so he agreed to get in the car with the state patrol, and they drove us back to Atlanta. We got and this home. is for your safety because this is a night where things on campus got really ugly, really ugly. Yeah, so you there went was, back to Atlanta for your safety. Yeah, there were students. Well, they said for our safety, but that was one reason to get rid of us. Oh, maybe was thinking a, you weren't coming back. Yeah, and so our lawyers went to court the next morning, got us readmitted immediately, and you know what's interesting is that. As I said, Hamilton never made a single friend. But over time, he and the university reconciled. Uh, they have a uh, a lecture called the Holmes Hunter Lecture where people go and talk about whatever they want to talk about. But generally, it's about race and how to get along and all of that. In time, Hamp made his peace with the way he had been received and would come to this Holmes Hunter lecture. And one time, there was a governor, I think this was maybe 40 years later, and the governor, who had said, no, not one black student will ever be allowed to attend the University of Georgia. He had said that. That's a direct quote. 
40 years later at one of these Holmes Hunter lectures, he comes to the lecture and apologizes. Mm. So, you know, in time, good things happen, but you have to work at it. That's the that's part of the point. Wow. I could talk to you all day, but I want to remind our listeners, we're talking with um, Charlene Hunter-Galt, a longtime journalist who's had an incredible career uh, about her early years, about what's what she's doing now. At the age of 80, I believe you're 80 years old as I look at you. I'll be 81 in a few oh, days. Well, well, happy t- birthday to me. Happy <laughs> birthday to you. And you have a new book out. Uh, you've published, you have written other books, including a memoir, but your new book is called My People, Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives. You had me at the title, <laughs> Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives uh, in Your Career as a Journalist in Some of the um, you know, Most Respected Newsrooms uh, in the Country. So who, who do you think would benefit the most from reading a book like this, a collection of, of news articles and essays that you've written, uh, and you describe often what's going on behind the scenes as you are, are giving these assignments or as you write these stories? Who do you want to read this? I want everybody who can read to read it. <laughs> and, if, and, and if they have children who can't read, read it to them. Um, because I think that it, it's like the piece, the book I wrote about, um, about Africa. Africa for years was always r- reported on in terms of what I call the four Ds, death, disease, disaster, and despair. And there's more to the continent than that. And the same with people of color. But not everybody in this book is black. I mean, I I have issues with generalizations about black people and white people because white people died for us in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I remember Viola Liuzzo, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, so many. uh, When John Lewis, who is one of our great civil rights pioneers, when he took the t- took a bus to challenge the de- the seg- desegregation of interstate bus routes white people went with him and before they left dc they all signed their wills because they knew that they were undertaking a serious challenge because there were still people who objected to desegregating the bus routes. And they get to someplace, I think it was in South Carolina, and John gets off the bus and starts into the building, the bus station, and these white boys standing says, wait a minute, you need to go around the back. And John turned and said, no, I'm here to test the ruling that allows for desegregating the, and the, the, the bus route. They started beating him. And three, I think it was three white boys, men who were on the bus, got off to to rescue John, and they beat them too. So I think that while primarily it's a history of black people, for the most part, it's a history of our people mm-hmm. who are my people. That's the title. Charlene, let's go back and now and talk more about your journalism career. You know, after you graduated college, you became, um, I believe, the first black reporter to write for the New Yorker's Talk of the Town section. And then you went on to become the first black journalist to open a Harlem bureau for the New York Times. As you look back on those days, what sticks with you about, um, you know, basically, we've talked about this, you used the phrase integrating and desegregating. Was Mm -hmm. it sort of similar to that being like, kind of the first person to do these jobs? 
Well, I never thought about it in that way as that I was breaking a barrier. I, I thought about it as doing my job. And I remember when I had the conversation with the uh, Metropolitan Editor of the New York Times, Arthur Gelb. And so I was talking to him. I worked for a little. He said, well, let me ask you this. If I sent you to Harlem to cover a story of someone who was a friend of yours but who had done something bad, would you be able to tell the truth about it? And I said, well, it would depend. I said, because so often black people are accused of things they didn't do. I said, so I would go and report it, and if, in fact, he had done something bad, I'd write about it. But I would write the story as I saw it in case what he was charged with wasn't what was right. And then subsequently, after I had reported for a while there, I decided that the best way for me to write about black people was to be in their neighborhoods, to see them every day, to see what they were doing. And I had a friend, I'd made a friend who's a lawyer, and he had a spare room in his office, which overlooked 125th Street and 7th Avenue, which was the corner since the (laughs) days of Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X. All of those people used to stand on a, a ladder, a street ladder, and preach to the community. And so in in this lawyer's office, I could look out and I could see that corner. But not only were they the speakers who would come there, like, like Marcus Garvey advocating people go back to Africa or Malcolm X and the things that he advocated, but in the block a few yards from that corner was a bookstore. And it was run by a tiny little man named Louis Michaud. And Michaud used to speak in couplets. One of his couplets was, the white man's dream of being supreme has turned to sour cream. (laughs) But he had one, at that time, one of the largest collections by and about black people in the country. And so Black writers, black academics, as well as white writers and white academics would come to his bookstore uh, to, uh, to, to take part in, in, in his discussions, but also to look at the books that he had. And so I wrote about him. And I wrote about other things in Harlem that weren't the typical picture. Or, or what was being reported typically in the news. Exactly. But right. I also, I mean, I wrote about Walter Vandermeer, who was the youngest boy, youngest person to die of an overdose of heroin. You had to write these things, but you had to put them in context. Mm-hmm. And so why would a 12-year-old die of heroin? And once we investigated it, I did it with Joe Lelleville, a, a white reporter for the Times. Once they investigated, once we investigated it was clear that a lot of these black families didn't have any support. And so if they had a 12-year-old who was going out in the street and using drugs, but it was a mother with four or five other kids by herself, you had to put put all of this in context. Why? Like, how did we get to this moment? That's right. And I remember my family was so supportive because we were reporting this in December And I remember December the 24th, I was walking around Harlem trying to find a Christmas tree (laughs) that I could take up the hill to where we were living near Columbia University for my young family because they were still 
you know, of an age where Santa Claus used to come. <laughs> and so, you know, I had to integrate what I was doing for the people with my people who were my family as well. <laughs> yes, I, I'm glad you brought this. So a couple of things uh, in your book, My People, many of the articles that you wrote for the New York Times are in your book. So mm-hmm. lots of stories there. But I, I want to talk about the, uh, the fact that you, you did and do wear this hat of mom as well. And one of my favorite um, uh, articles that you have in the book uh, talks about uh, your time in South Africa. You were... Um, for in case people don't know, or want to remind them again, uh, you lived in South Africa for many years. Seventeen. Uh, Seventeen. Uh, you were there as the CNN bureau chief and correspondent uh, in Johannesburg, and then you also, of course, worked for National Public Radio as well. Uh, but you talk about. Uh, I read this is one of the, the so towards the end of the book um, that you had this conversation with Nelson Mandela shortly before he was sworn in as president of South Africa. Uh, and you you basically are telling uh, Mandela, um, I can't be there for your swearing-in ceremony. Can you s- share with our listeners that story of why, after many years of covering uh, the end of apartheid, life after apartheid, and, and talking with Nelson Mandela, that you were like... Madiba, as he liked to be called or was called, mm-hmm. can't be there for the swearing in. Sorry. Not sorry, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did say I was sorry because he knew me from the years that I had covered um, the the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, but, you know, as a mom with two younger children, one one was eight years younger than the other one. My son was eight years younger than my daughter. And I had very good people who uh, looked after him, including their father, uh, Chuma's father. Um, and Susan had a relationship with her father, with for whom, with whom I was uh, divorced. Um, but I was away from them a lot. And so here was a significant moment in Chuma, my son Chuma's life, and I had to be there. What was the moment? What was happening? He was graduating from Emory University. Mm-hmm. And so I said to Madiba, you know, I'm so happy to be here to interview you prior to you taking over as the first black president of South Africa. But unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be here because, and I told him my son was graduating from Emory. And he looked at me with the most wonderful fatherly smile. And he said, of course, you have to be there. You can interview me anytime. And he held, that was true. Anytime I wanted to interview Mandela, he would make time for me to do it. And I got to Atlanta in time to see my son get his bachelor's degree. As you know, because you're a mom, it's a balancing act. Yeah, that spoke to me because there are so many times when I have, you know, said no. Mm-hmm. Uh, to assignments or opportunities because I'm like, no, my, my children have one mom. Yes. But that's, that's always a struggle because you, you feel like often you can feel like I'm not, you, I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough because there's so many demands between work and family that, that uh, I think women in particular often feel like I'm not enough. Right. Well, if you help your children understand your life and your life's work and how important that is to you, as well as how important they are, mm-hmm. then I think you can manage. I mean, sometimes you have little problems. There's no. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it was all perfect. <laughs> like you do with your audience and like I'm trying to do with you. I hope I'm doing it. But you share your life. 
with people as it is so that they understand what motivates you and what keeps you going. And that's helpful. That decision for you is like you couldn't imagine not being there to see your son graduate from college, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Because Mm -hmm. you knew what it meant to him and you knew what it meant to you. Right. And, and, And the thing about Mandela's response, I think this is very important. For years, he had been unable to be with his own children. Yes. And I think that when he spoke to me that day and said, you have to be there, he was being the father that he had never been able to be with his own children. Because, you know, he was out uh, with Mkanto Wisiswe, the guerrilla movement Mm -hmm. uh, that had to travel all over the African continent to rally people to support them trying to get rid of their discriminatory system, mm-hmm. apartheid. He couldn't be at home. Couldn't Even be before at home. he was in prison, he couldn't, couldn't be, be at home. home. Couldn't mm-hmm. be with his children. Couldn't be with his wife. And so here was a time when he, maybe even for the first time, was able to be like a father. Mm-hmm. And he said, of course you have to be. I, I'll never forget that. It was such a moment. <laughs> of course you have to be there. Um, I just returned from an 11 day trip to South Africa. You were there 17 years. I was mm-hmm. there 11 days, but mm-hmm. I, I was, I, I shared with you when you walked in, I, I was just struck by, um, you know, the extreme wealth and the extreme poverty, the disparities there, um, you know, the natural beauty, but also the, the, the poverty, um, the shanties, the, the mountains and oceans all like intermingled. Um, what was it like for you when living there? Uh, what are, what do you remember that you loved about South Africa and, and what has sort of remained with you about just the spirit of the people? Well, you say people, and that's the key. The people were wonderful. Mm-hmm. No matter where you went, um, people were open. You, I mean, you had to present yourself in a certain kind of way, uh, but they were open. And um, I got a lot of support uh, from people who were trying to make – the. To turn their country into what our country was, because if you re- if you will recall, the South African Constitution was more liberal than the U.S. Constitution because in their Constitution, which which they created, you know, when they took over, um, they had in there uh, equality for for uh, people who were homosexuals. You know, they didn't call them homosexuals, but in effect, that's what it was. And so they they ensured that they were protected by the South African Constitution. We didn't have that in our Constitution. So there are things that... And that was in the mid-90s. Yeah. So while we learn, they learned from us many things, we also had things we had to learn from them. And so now um, it's a challenge situation there. Mm-hmm. As well as here. What were you writing about? What are the stories you remember? And what have you added in the book about covering the end of apartheid? And, and as as all of these folks are trying to figure out a new way of living together. Well, you just go and you talk to people. You get you you get your feet in the street. And <laughs> and that's how you. In fact, I had one young man. <laughs> I wrote about him. I think it's in the book. Um, his name was George Dayoff which is how you pronounced it, but he was actually called Dr. Death, that day off is death. And and so uh, he, and again, you know, this is how 
you work with people no matter what color they are, if they have the right attitudes. And he helped us get through so much when we were in South Africa, uh, leading us around to various places, helping us to know where to go to talk to ant- former apartheid people. And then I get back to New York, where I was working then for the News Hour, PBS News Hour, and I learned that he had been murdered. And it turns out when we left, he said he didn't want to continue because he had had such a good time with us, but he wanted to move on. But there was one time he was asked to do, do help with a story, cover a story that I think it was black people rioting with each other. And he went and being white, he was seen as the enemy and they murdered him. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a piece called Dr. Death, and it was published in The New Yorker. And so I, I guess as I talk and I think about my own life, which I rarely do, I just keep going, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's the people who have helped me continue on my path. Because when you write about somebody who has had difficulties mm-hmm. and somehow the difficulties get resolved or more people get involved in trying to help them with their difficulties or you write about people as they are if they're a, 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 a dancer or a, a bank president or in New York I wrote about a wonderful policeman. You know, we have so many problems these days with police but there are good policemen out there too. I talked. About, I talk about this uh, policeman, white policeman in Alabama, when he took over. This was during the civil rights when when John Lewis and all of those were marching down in Alabama, and he went and saw what was going on. And so what he did was he went to the school where the young policemen were being trained and insisted that they put in a course on black history. So that's what we need today, more understanding of all of our histories by all of our people, including our policemen. As we talk about um, education, um, you know, you you emphasize the importance of teaching young people black history um, in your book uh, and also in so much of your work, and you shared your personal story of how it, it has, has shaped who you are. So, you know, what is it like for you when you listen to the news, read the news, watch TV, and you're hearing the stories about the, the backlash to teaching black history in schools? Well, I think that there are people out there who are fighting the backlash. Uh, it's early. And so in some cases, like in Florida, um, there's one school, a uh, new college, uh, which has been taken over by by uh, people who don't want this history taught. Um, you just have to continue to try to inform people about why black history is important. And also, uh, because it's our armor, we learn from history uh, I I love this quote from LL Cool J. Don't call it a comeback. Don't don't call it a com- Don't call it a comeback. <laughs> I've been here for years, he says. <laughs> and so you look at the history, and then you just try to share that with people uh, in a way that helps them work towards a more perfect union. 
And so I think that there are a lot of people who are unhappy with this attack on black history. And and I'm hoping that they're going to step up and speak out about why it's important and especially speak out to people who are opposing mm-hmm. this teaching so that they can understand why it is important and and what it has meant to our country as a whole because in our history we have people even before Martin Luther King way going way back to Frederick Douglass and so many others um they need that history and to go back to South Africa for just a second when I first interviewed Nelson Mandela when he was just out of prison mm-hmm. There were journalists from all over the world, and there were only two who got half-hour interviews, me and Ted Koppel. And and I I wanted to be last because I had a whole other way I wanted to approach it. Ted Koppel, we can warm him up. Right, right. right. So I said, let's get him a cup of tea. He's been talking all day, and he's you know he wasn't used to being on television because when he went to prison, there wasn't anything like this. So I wanted to do something different and get something different. So I sat down, and I said— Mr. Mandela, it's so nice having you here today with me. I said, you know, I come out of the, and I wanted to establish a connection, right? So I said, I come out of the American Civil Rights Revolution. And before I could tell him what I had experienced and what my role had been and everything, he said, oh, really? He said, do you know Miss Maya Angelou? Well, I didn't quite know her. I knew her work, but I said, oh, yes, sir. And he said, well... We read all of her books while we were in prison. Now, everybody was trying to get some insight into what it was like when Mandela was in prison. And here it was, my scoop. He read (laughs) all of Maya Angelou's books. I couldn't wait to get back to America and find her and let her know uh, how how she had come up. Uh, early on when he was just And did you do that? Did you tell? Were you able to tell her or communicate that to her? I told her. So when I was on the tour of uh, Robben Island and, um, you know, talking to the tour guides, many of them, you know, are are former political prisoners, uh, they talked about the the cave there uh, in the prison yard, the the limestone quarry, Mm -hmm. where they would chop rocks and just move them from side to side just to have labor. But in a, a cave where they were supposed to, the prisoners were supposed to take their bathroom breaks, it was in that cave that they that Mandela and others were teaching the other prisoners how to read and write mm-hmm. and they were sharing their history but they also got uh like Mandela's eyes were severely affected right because they had no protective gear they had no, no protective gear and that dust from those caves but but Charlene, know, that's what spoke that like of all the photos I have and I probably have hundreds of thousands of pictures of South Africa in my phone the picture of that cave mm. it spoke to me about the resilience of black people yeah and that's what I I really carry from that experience there mm-hmm. just amazing yeah it it was amazing and I think that what they did in that prison they understood the importance of history so that when the guards weren't looking they were teaching each other the history their history as well as world history. And that's why Mm -hmm. that was their shield uh, in shining armor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. The invisible tiara. The invisible tiara, Mm -hmm. exactly. One of the pieces in your book, um, My People, Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives, um, Charlene, you 
you write about um, interviewing black students after the 2016 election of President Donald Trump. Uh, They were distraught over the election and they were sharing that with you. And some of them told you they woke up in tears and you wrote about talking to them. Um, Tell our listeners what you, you said to those young students. Uh, I'm supposed to remember what I said to those young students. Uh, yeah, well, no, no, I, I do because it's, it's the same message. It's that you, you have to keep on keeping on. You cannot let something like this, which is bothersome to a lot of people, uh, change your attitude about your country and what it stands for and what your role is in it. And so regardless of who is leading the country, you live in your community where you can have an impact with whatever is going on. And I, I, re- I remember uh, we need more education uh, in our communities by people who have the history and know the history. Mm-hmm. Because I was speaking at a school one day and I mentioned the 54 decision and none of the students knew what I was talking about. And when the t- and I explained what the fifty four decision was about, it ended segregation and in, in, in education. The teacher, the black teacher, the young black teacher, who was walking me to my car, said, "Can I make a confession?" I said, "Sure." What is it? She said, "I didn't know what the fifty four decision was either." Now here she is teaching students. And so we have to insist, I think, in every way we can, including what you're doing, that all of our people are exposed to and presented and learn our history. Black, white, yellow, whatever their color, people need to understand the history because while it's black history, it's history, it's human history. Yes. And every race has issues, and in including here now in America, and they need the history to know that they have to struggle to overcome. And when they do struggle, more often than not, our history teaches us they overcome. Charlene, you're 80, soon to be 81. Uh, when I think of you, I will think of keep on keeping on. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, I think, I think when you go back to look at the victories that we've had, it's because people have been empowered by our history. And when they've been challenged, the history was their armor. And so that's why we have to keep sharing that history so that we can all keep on keeping on towards making a more perfect union. Because as we have been in the past, we have been the model for countries all over the world. And and that's starting to diminish. And we've got to recapture that because what we have stood for from day one in this country is all of the people have the have the blessing and have the have the protection 
of our laws. We're, we're stronger when we're stronger. Work as one, as together. Yes. yes. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, again, welcome to Minnesota. I, I hope you enjoy your time with us here. Uh, I want to thank our guest, longtime journalist Charlene Hunter Galt. Her new book is called Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives. And uh, she's also the author of a memoir that I want to get. Uh, your memoir is, memoir is called In My Place. And that is about being the first black woman to enroll in the University of Georgia back in 1961. Today's conversation was produced by my colleague, Samantha Matsumoto. Thank you again, Charlene. So great to see you again. Thank you. You inspire (laughs) me. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you all tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.